Colossians chapter 3, if you'd open your Bibles to it, Colossians 3. On Sunday mornings, we've been, uh, I've been preaching through uh, the book of Colossians here. And we've come to this uh, third chapter and verse 18. Now, you know the context here. Paul is in uh, prison in Rome. He's under house arrest. He's already been through three missionary journeys. And uh, at the end of Acts 28, he, uh, he's there under that house arrest, and he's allowed to get people, visitors, in and out, and he tries to minister from there, uh, talking to people that are coming from the churches that he's planted, uh, sending letters, receiving letters, and he gets this visit from this man named Epiphras, who was, I believe, the guy that was part of planting the church of Coloss- at Colossae, along with the two other churches uh, in that area, Laodicea and Hierapolis. And Paul gets word from uh, Epiphras of some good things in chapter 1, but also some concerning things. And uh, they were being told that, uh, well, you know, Christ will save you, but to live the Christian life, you know, you need a little bit more than that. And uh, Paul is trying to remind them and teach them here that all we need is Christ and His Word. That's it. And uh, He is no doubt. We are complete in Him. So we've come to chapter 3. And let's stand together. We're going to read verse 18 down to verse 22. I'll read as you follow along. Colossians 3, verse 18. Wives... Submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing unto the Lord. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh, Not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Amen. We'll stop there. There's plenty of it for us to deal with. What I'd like to do is I'd like to do this. Please keep your Bibles open. If you are a wife, when I say begin, I want you to read verse 18. All right? Read it out loud. Ready? Begin. That wasn't hard, was it? All right, if you're a husband, would you read verse 18 when I say begin? Ready? I'm sorry, 19. Yeah, not 18. (laughs) We would like to read verse 18, wouldn't we? Verse 19, ready, begin. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. Verse 20, if you're a young person, we say, I'm not a child. Let's put it this way. If you live at home and your parents... Pay, put a roof over your head, and they pay for your food and that sort of thing. Amen. I want you to read verse 20 when I say begin. Ready? Begin. All right, if you're a father, let's read it. Verse 21, ready, begin. Fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. And then if you have a job, All right, we'll just apply it to that. This is, of course, talking about a household servant primarily, but it also applies to someone who works for someone. So if you have a job, read verse 22, ready, begin. Servants, obey in all things your masters according to the flesh 
not with eye service as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. All right, let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you did not leave us here to try to figure out life on our own. That you've given us a book. You've given us a Bible. And Lord, we know that the Bible is not everything you know, but it's everything you want us to know. And it transcends all cultures and all time. That these words are good for us today. And so I pray as I preach the message that you've led me to preach, that you'd help me this morning. Please fill me afresh and anew with thy spirit. And Lord, I pray you'd give us all ears to hear and a heart willing to obey what your word says today. Use this message to bring glory to yourself. And I do pray if someone here is lost without Christ, not saved, but today they trust Jesus Christ as their Savior. Thank you for your love. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you for standing. You may be seated. Since the beginning of chapter 3 of the book of Colossians, the Apostle Paul has been instructing this relatively young church and these relatively young believers in the church of Colossae on how to live the victorious Christian life. That's what God wants for us. He wants us to live, those of us that know Him as Savior, He wants us to live the victorious Christian life. In other words, how a saved person can live a life that is pleasing to God, that brings glory to God, that produces the most fruit, and realizes the joy and the peace and the abundant life that the Lord Jesus Christ promised all of us. He did say that to His disciples, by the way, and that means to us as well. John 10.10, the thief cometh not but for to steal and to kill and to destroy. I am come that they might have life and that they might have it more abundantly. That's what he wants. He wants you and I to have the abundant Christian life. John 14.27, peace I leave with you, my peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He wants us to have a life filled with peace. Then in John 15, 11, again to his disciples, these things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you and that your joy might be full. All these things and more are found in the Lord Jesus Christ. That's where they're found. But they can only be realized, it can only become a reality in your life and my life if we truly know Him as our personal Savior and then yield our lives to Him. That's how it's realized. And by the way, we yield our lives to Him by yielding our lives to His Word. We do what the Bible says. And in the first 15 verses of this chapter, Paul was giving some very, very specific instructions on realizing this abundant Christian life. Notice in verse 1 of chapter 3, he told them to seek those things which are above. If ye then be risen with Christ, notice, seek those things which are above. In other words, seek the things of God. Then in verse 2, he says to set your affection on things above, not on the things of the earth. Put your heart on the thing, into the things of God and heavenly things, not on the earthly things. Amen. 
Then in verse 5, he says to mortify or to put to death the deeds of the flesh. And he lists five of them. There's a lot more, by the way. But he lists five of them. He says mortify fornication and uncleanness, inordinate affection, evil concupiscence, and covetousness. And he says those were the things that you used to do before you were saved. But now that you're saved, you are to put those things to death. And we put them to death by starving them. And then he told him in verse 8, another set of instructions here, beginning in verse 8, going down to verse uh, 12, he tells them and tells us by extension to put off the old man and his deeds. That old man is speaking of that old nature that still resides in us even after we're saved, that Adamic nature, that flesh. He tells us to put it off and he lists six of those deeds and there's many more again. And he lists anger and wrath and malice and blasphemy and filthy for communication out of your mouth and lying. He says to put those things off, and I had those two shirts that were up here a couple weeks ago, and to put on the new man. Cast off that old man, put on the new man, and he shows us what what that is like. Uh, He describes it in verse 10, that man that is renewed in knowledge after the image of him that created him. In other words, that new man that's in us when we get saved, the Spirit of God, that new nature, which is the image of Jesus Christ, and we are to put on the new man, and he lists a bunch of things. I believe it's eight of them. What that looks like, he says to... Put on, notice in verse 12, bowels of mercies and kindness and humbleness of mind, meekness, long-suffering, forbearing one another, forgiving one another, and charity. And so those were the instructions that uh, he gave us. And we must think, as we look at that, I think, how in the world can I do that? What is the means that I do that? And we find in verse 16, he tells us how to do it. He tells us of the one thing that is going to give us the ability to do that. The ability to set our affection on things above uh, and to seek those things above and to mortify those deeds and to put off the old man and put on the new man. And he says, here it is, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, we saw that word dwell is a very important word. In other words, we must allow the Word of God to take complete ownership of every area of our lives. We must let it govern our life. We must let it regulate and dictate everything that we do. And this will only happen if we do those four things that I mentioned last week, and that is we are to hear the Word of God. We are to heed the Word of God. We are to hide the Word of God in our hearts, and we're to handle it rightly. In other words, take it for what it says and not try to excuse it away. And when we do that, of course, uh, we can realize that abundant Christian life. And now, as our passage begins this morning, Paul is literally bringing it down to where we live. Our homes. Preacher, you're not going to meddle with my home this morning, am I? Well, God is. God's going to tell us about the home. You see, it's not too difficult for me and you to be good Christians at church. You know, when you and I were surrounded by Christians, we're singing the hymns and that sort of thing. 
Not too hard to be a good Christian at church. In fact, it's not too hard to be a Christian at work, a, a pretty good Christian at work. It's when you want people to think well of you and your livelihood depends upon your behavior, so there are some limits there. And so, yeah, it's not too difficult. Or, or in public places when, you know, when people are watching you, you're in the store, you're somewhere, and, uh, you know, people are looking. Maybe it's another church member or somebody else, and you don't want to publicly embarrass yourself. So, you, you know, you put on that good Christianity if you will, or, or when you're entertaining guests, you have people over, you know, you clean the house up and you make it look good and all of that, and we put on our best for them. It's not too difficult for us to be Christians, good Christians in those settings. But you know, the one place that, we're, that will reveal the reality and depth of our Christianity more than any other place is our homes. Amen. In my home. What are you and what am I in my home? You see, your spouse, your children, whatever the case, your parents, brothers and sisters, those that live with you, they know exactly where you are spiritually. Exactly where you are. There's no hiding it from them. Oh, we can come to church and we can praise the Lord and hallelujah and sing the hymns. We ought to do that. There's nothing wrong with that. But what are we doing at home? What are our homes like? You see, it's only when the Word of God is dwelling richly in us that we will be the Christians we ought to be. Not at work, not at church, uh, uh, not in public places, but I'm talking this morning about in our homes. And so this morning I want to preach on this subject. Is Christ seen in your Is Jesus Christ seen in your home? You know, a Christian home is not merely a home where the people in that home profess Christ as Savior. A Christian home is a home where each person is saved and they are truly striving to live the Christian life. That's a Christian home. Not just, well, we're all saved here. We all can tell you when we got saved and you go home and live like the devil. That's that's not a Christian home. A Christian home is when you and I, when we're saved and we are truly striving to live the Christian life in our home with those that are closest to us. And really, that's what this passage is all about. Paul is telling each person in the home, that's why I had us read it the way I did. He's showing each person, telling each person in the home what their home life will look like if the word of Christ is dwelling in you. This is what it'll look like, husband. This is what it'll look like, wife. This is what it will look like, child. This is what it will look like, father. This is what it will look like, servant. And so let's look at that this morning, and see if we can't get some help, which all of us need, for our homes. Let's consider, number one, the condition of the home. I'm going to lay some foundational things here before we dive into this text, and I I could literally preach a sermon, anyone could, on each of those individuals listed there in these verses. But I want to hit it in a general sense. Let's consider this morning the condition of the home. What is the condition of your home? In my home, spiritually. I'm talking about what it looks like on the outside. Well, the windows are new and I got new doors and I just put a deck on the back. I'm not talking about that this morning. Right. Amen. 
I'm talking about the people in your home. What's the spirit like? What is the spiritual condition of your home and mine? You know, the very first institution that God ordained for mankind was the home. It was the family. The home was instituted by God just after uh, creation in Genesis chapter 2. And we understand that the home, the family, is the backbone to society. I've said it quite often, probably five or six times in the last few weeks, right? As goes to home, so goes to church, and as goes to church, so goes to nation. So the health of our nation, the health of our churches depend on the health of our homes. And how are they? You see, God's design for the home is very simple. A lot of confusion out there today. It's really not confusing. It's really, really simple. A man marries a woman. It's a shame i got to say a biological man because there is no other type. But a biological man marries a biological woman. They have children and they raise those children God's way. And every individual in that home follows God's instructions for them in his word. More about that later. And understand when when God's process, when his model, when his blueprint is followed, the result will be God's product. It's really that simple. And that is a God-blessed home. You know, hold your hand here. Go back to Deuteronomy 11 because there's a phrase that I love to read in the Bible that really makes the Christian home just uh, describes it in a wonderful way of what we could have. Look at Deuteronomy 11 and verse 18. This is speaking in the context of the home. Similar passage to Deuteronomy chapter 6. Therefore shall ye lay up these my words in your heart and in your soul and bind them for a sign upon your hand, we're in verse 18, that they may be as frontlets between your eyes and ye shall teach them your children, speaking of them when thou sittest in thine house and when thou walkest by the way, when thou liest down and when thou risest up. And thou shalt write them upon the doorposts of thine house and upon thy gates. Notice this, verse 21, that your days, in other words, if you follow God's pattern here, if you and I for the home follow God's blueprint, notice he says that your days may be multiplied and the days of your children in the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers to give them, look at this phrase, as the days of heaven upon earth. Now, I know you can never have heaven on earth. I get that. Heaven's heaven. Earth is earth. But what he's saying here is this, is that it can be kind of like heaven, right. your home. Amen. It can be like heaven on earth in a sense. Right. Amen. And I want to ask you and ask me, does that describe your home and my home? Heaven on earth? Or maybe the alternative. You see, the state of the home and the family in America is very sad. Very sad. Do you know, according to Forbes magazine, 70 to 80% of families in America, this is families in general, 70 to 80% of them consider themselves to be in a dysfunctional home. They say it themselves. 70 to 80% would raise their hand and say, our home is dysfunctional. Now, a dysfunctional home is defined uh, this way. It is a home that is not functioning properly. It is a home that is characterized by abnormal or unhealthy interpersonal behavior or interpersonal interaction. 
And that's how 70 to 80% of families describe themselves. What a sad, sad state we are in in America. Peter Gerlach, he's a family therapist. No indication he's a Christian. I just read the article. For many years, he gave this, uh, he was that for many years. He gave a list of what he called the common signs of dysfunctional families. He said this, some of the signs of, of, of a dysfunctional family are the following. Number one, he says, very little love demonstrated between family members. In other words, you wouldn't know they love one another or they cared for one another. Number two, he says, adults yelling and screaming and quarreling with each other much of the time. Number three, he said, psychological divorce. In other words, he said, family members detach themselves from one another. In other words, they live emotionally separate lives. They may be in the same house, uh, but this one's doing his thing, this one's doing their thing. They are emotionally detached from one another, living totally separate lives. He says, that's a sign of a dysfunctional family. He says, number four, members not speaking to one another. Number five, he says, children not being taught or trained or disciplined in the home by parents. And dysfunctional families, we know what that leads to. Statistics tell us it leads to divorce. It leads to children being troubled academically and socially and physically and mentally. Uh, Dysfunctional families lead to substance abuse. Uh, It leads to depression and other mental illnesses. It leads to trouble with the law, with the young ones in the family, and even financial problems. Uh, But this is what happens when we get away from the word of God. This is what we end up with. I was reading one author. He wrote this, quote, the American family of every race and every ethnicity continues to disintegrate. Since 1980, the marriage rate has dropped 45%. 41% of children are born to unmarried mothers. Fatherless or single-parent homes produce children who are two times more likely to be arrested for juvenile crime and twice as likely to be treated for emotional and behavioral problems. They are also 33% more likely to drop out of school, and there is more, they are more likely, three times more likely to end up in jail by the age of 30. Again, my point is this. This is what happens when we get away from God's design, Amen. from God's model, from the individuals Amen. in that home uh, doing it God's way. Amen. But, you know, Christian homes aren't doing much better. We may say, well, preacher, that's the world. I see it. Christian homes aren't much better. Do you know the divorce rate amongst those that claim to be born-again believers is 33%. For those that say, I'm born again and I trusted Christ as my Savior. I'm a child of God. One-third are getting divorced. Do you know that's higher than groups like Catholics who are only at 19%, Mormons at 9%, Jehovah's Witnesses at 9%, Muslims at 8%, Jews at 9%, Hindus at 5%, Buddhists at 10%. But those of us that say, I know God and I believe the Bible, 33%. Something's wrong talking about the condition of our homes, they're troubled in general. According to the Baptist News Global, 68% of church-going men reported reported to view pornography 
on a regular basis. 87% of Christian women reported to view pornography at least once. 55% of married men and 25% of married women say that they view pornography at least once a month. 57% of pastors say that pornography addiction is, quote, the most damaging issue in their congregation. It's killing families. Their marriages are falling apart. Uh, And 69% of the pastors say that pornography has adversely impacted the families in their church. Uh, My point is this. the The condition of the average Christian home is lacking. Amen. Desperately lacking. But again, I say that's what happens when we depart from God. Amen. The condition of the home. Then I want us to think about number two, the solution for the home. So what's the solution? Here we are. I don't think any of us are happy about those statistics. I'm not, and I'm sure you're not either. Well, what's the solution? Now listen closely to this point before I get to the wives and the husbands and the families and all that. What is the solution? You know, one of the primary lessons that Paul was trying to teach to these church members as Colossae, don't miss this, was that it is impossible to live the Christian life without Christ. It is absolutely impossible to live the Christian life without Christ and without being submitted to his word. Impossible to have victory. Remember what Paul had been saying all along, Colossians 1.18. Notice he says, and he is a head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things he might have preeminence. And then in Colossians 2, notice verses 9 and 10. He says, for in him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily, and ye are complete in him, which is the head of all principality and power. In other words, you don't need anything to solve this issue. We don't need anything out there that the world has to offer. Everything we need is found in the Lord Jesus Christ and found in God's word. If we simply know him as Savior and and submit to his word, that's the solution, my friend. You know, there's a mistake, a grave mistake that I'm seeing and we're seeing here in these days that many Christians are making, first of all, in the political realm. And I'm going somewhere with this. There is an effort to produce morality without Christ. That's the effort. Let me give you an example. There's a large segment of Christians who believe that it is the Christian's duty to call our nation to a higher level of morality and that Christians should engage with all of our energies, all of our resources, all of our time and our money in an effort to politically, uh, through the media and through political pressure groups, uh, to try and change the moral character of our country. For many Christians, the the means that they use to try to achieve righteousness is by getting involved in politics, by holding signs up, by going to the abortion clinic and saying abortion is wrong, by sending out petitions, by lobbying uh, politicians, uh, by pouring time and money into elections and media events and political pressure groups. Can I ask you something? Is this a solution? The answer is no. 
You see, this will only bring superficial, subpar results. Now, I'm not against people necessarily that do that. But I am saying this. You're aiming at the wrong target. You have the wrong goal. You see, the only thing that will bring forth God's blessings is when people exercise saving faith in God's Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and then as being saved, live in submission to God's Word. There it is. That's what's going to fix it. When people get saved, when they know Jesus Christ as their Savior, their heart will change. They become a new creature in the Lord Jesus Christ. And when they submit and we submit to his word as Christians, uh, uh, understand that's the solution for our nation. Don't make the mistake that politics is going to fix it. But you know, we can make the same mistake in our homes. Now listen closely. In other words, trying to produce morality without Jesus Christ. Trying to produce uh, this godly product without submission to God's word. God has not called us, now listen to the whole statement here before before you hyperventilate. God has not called us to be good people. He's called us to be godly people. There's a difference. God has not called us to have good marriages. He's called us to have godly marriages. God has not called us to raise good children. He's called us to raise godly children. There's a difference. You see, good is a culturally relative term. Godly is an objective biblical term. That's the difference. And here's the problem. Too many of us are satisfied with a good marriage or a good family or good children because we say, well, they're moral. They're not doing wrong. Hey, we didn't get divorced. We're still together. Hey, we don't argue too much. You know, we're not like everybody else. We're good people. And our children, we want to raise them to be good. And so we give them, our children get a good education and, and they stay out of jail and they stay out of trouble. They stay off drugs and they get married and get a good job and make a good living and they work hard and they pay their bills. And, and we say, well, there we are. We're good moral people. What are you complaining about, preacher? Because God has not called us to that. Right. He called us to something much greater than that. And that is to be godly people. See, if you're aiming for just good in your home, you're aiming at the wrong thing. We should be aiming for godly. And the question shouldn't be, well, do I have a good life? Do I have a good marriage? Do I have good kids? The question should be this. Am I living a godly life? Is my marriage godly? Is it biblical? Are my kids godly kids? You see, the Christian mandate in the Bible is not about achieving cultural morality. The Christian mandate is about living by a biblical standard. And you cannot do that. You cannot do this without knowing Jesus Christ as your Savior and submitting to the Word of God. That's how you do it. Amen. You see, regeneration does things that the world cannot do by trying to get us all to do good. 
Regeneration supplies us the power to carry out God's command. Regeneration changes us. It changes our heart. It gives us a new person in life. Now we want to glorify God with our lives. Regeneration opens our eyes to, to God's only true pattern of God-glorifying conduct found in His Word. And regeneration causes us to want to submit to His Word. And that will Amen. produce godly people. Amen. Not just good people. You see, the solution for a godly home is regeneration Amen. and submission. Regeneration through the blood of the Lamb Amen. and submission to the Word of God. Thank you, Jesus. Which brings me to the last thing. And that is the instructions. So, I'm not going to tell you what the world thinks today. I'm going to tell you what God says. Amen. And I'm just going to show you right from the Word of God. Praise the Lord. So what is, what is, what is the biblical standard? Well, why my marriage is good, it's good, is it godly? Well, I'm a good wife, are you a biblical wife? Well, I'm a good husband, are you a biblical husband? Well, I'm not a bad child, are you operating biblically? What is God looking for in order for us to have have a godly home? Not just a good home, what does he want? Well, he tells us right here. As a matter of fact, God gives us, he gives each individual in the home biblical instructions for the Christ-honoring home. Now, this isn't all of them. This is just one of them, really one mainly for each person. But I would say arguably the main thing, Amen. the critical thing. Because when each individual has the word of God dwelling in them richly and they're saved and they're submitted to God's word, this is what your home is going to look like. Again, notice each individual is, giving, is given either a word or a phrase. I'll call it a key phrase or a key word which declares your primary responsibility in the home. Amen. So, whichever applies to you, I want you this morning to take that word or that phrase and ask, right. is that what I'm doing? Good. Well, we're better than the world. We're not divorced. Are you biblical? Are you following God's word? Amen. All right, well, let's go, let's go at it. Verse 18. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as it is fit in the Lord. Amen. So the word for wives is the word what? Amen. All right. Ladies, I'll say wives and you say the word. I'm going to do it to the men, so... So don't, don't get mad at me, all right? I'm just reading this what the Bible says. It's Bible words, right? Amen. All right. Wives. One more time. Wives. Wives submit. Notice what it says here. Wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands. That's interesting, isn't it? It's under your own husbands. You know why? Because it's a lot easier to submit, submit to someone that you don't know as much as you know about your husband. Because you've seen him at home. And most wives think, Submit to him. I didn't write it. God did. Submit yourselves unto your own husband as it is fit in the Lord. Ephesians 5.22 has a parallel 
command, wives, submit yourselves unto your own husbands as unto the Lord. Titus 2, 4, uh, to the young women, that they may teach the young women to be sober, to love their husbands, to love their children, to be discreet, chaste, keepers at home, good, obedient to their own husbands, that the word of God be not blasphemed. 1 Peter 3, 1, likewise ye wives, be in subjection to your own husbands. You know this very word has become an offensive word to people today. Right. You felt it when I held it up and when we read it. Because it's in our culture. Because there's a misunderstanding of this word. People say, oh, you're one of those churches, huh? Patriarchs. Chauvinistic. Those type of guys. Well, that's, this is what the Bible says. Amen. You see, our culture sees this command as demeaning, as archaic, as unfair, as discriminatory, and as chauvinistic. By the way, that's the same culture that cannot define what a woman is. They can't figure out which bathroom you're supposed to go in. Where's the bathroom? Uh, uh, It depends. Uh, 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 What are you today? And they're going to tell us what to do? You see, they try to push us into a place that's right. not biblical. Right. Amen. Uh, to say that, well, well you, you mean the wife's a doormat. Is that what you're saying? Not at all. Amen. As, a matter, as, as a matter of fact, one of the best things that, it ha- that has happened to women in general is Christianity. Uh, you look at Islam. You look at some of these other religions right. that treat women as property, as ownership. And they do degrade them. And they do treat them as doormats. Right. Uh, they do. Not in the Bi- that's not the Bible way. Amen. Uh, You see, God created man to be the provider and the protector and the spiritual leader of the home. And so somebody has to make the final decision in the home. Somebody does, just like if you went to work. They have a hierarchy there. They have a manager, the owner. Somebody has to, if they didn't have anybody doing any of that, it would be mayhem in the business. Somebody has to say, well, okay, you're the night manager. That means you listen to him. That doesn't mean he's better than anybody else. That just means that's the position that he's been given. And by the way, he's responsible for those decisions that he makes. And God in the home has ordained the man to be the final decision maker in the home. Now, let me clarify this command. Wives, submit yourselves to your own husbands. Uh, three quick statements. Number one, it does not imply that the wife is inferior to her husband. Right. She is Amen. absolutely not. Amen. Doesn't mean the man's smarter. Most times they're not. <laughs> Has a better personality. Most times we don't. A woman and a man are of equal worth in the eyes of God. They have just been given a different role by God in the home. I think when I preached on this subject a while back on Wednesday nights, I brought in a a fork and a spoon, and I held them up. I said, I like them both. They both are helpful, but they have different uses. I can't eat soup with a fork. I need a spoon. 
and I can't stab a piece of meat with a spoon, I need a fork. It doesn't mean one's better than the other. They have different roles, and it's the same in the home. The man has a role, and the woman has a role, and the woman's role is to submit to her husband, allow him to lead. So it doesn't mean that she's inferior to the husband. Number two, it's not absolute. You say, what do you mean by that? If a husband would ask or tell his wife or say to his wife, we're going to do this, and it's ungodly, it's unscriptural, then the wife has the duty to disobey her husband. Right. So it's not absolute. Right. And then number three, it's issued in the context of love. More in a moment about the husband's love. In other words, he is to lead, lovingly lead. We'll see that here in a, in a moment. And a wife's obedience to this command is not dependent on his performance as a leader. Or whether or not he's doing what he's supposed to do. Wives are to submit when Christ is in the house. Amen. They will. The They'll say, okay, we are of equal worth, but my husband is the leader of this home, and I am to submit to his decisions that are, no doubt, not ungodly. All right, so wives, submit. Husbands, you ready? I know the, I know the wives wanted this one. Let me get to this one quick. Husbands, your word is? All right, again, say it. Husbands, love. All right, notice the verse here. Husbands, love your wives and be not bitter against them. You bitter man. Stop being bitter against her. She loves you. She cares for you. She's trying to help you. Ephesians 5.25, husbands, love your wives, even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 1 Peter 3.7, likewise, ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife. So notice, husbands, what are we to do? We are to love our wives. Watch this. Well, I think I love her. Do you love her as Christ loved the church? Well, I think I love her pretty good. I think I do. I let her cook for me. I let her wash my clothes. I love her. I tell her she did a good job when she shined my shoes. Please, don't even do that. Don't even do that. She's not a slave. Stop. Amen. You are to love your wife as Christ loved the church. Understand, you are to honor her. Amen. That idea is to put her upon a pedestal. That's what the word means. You are to cherish her. You are to provide for her, uh, to protect her. And you are to listen to her. You are to respect her opinion. And not lord over her. But lovingly lead her. You see, when Christ is in the house, the husband's love for his wife will be evident. Outside of God, the number one earthly person you have, husband, is your wife. Right. Love her. Amen. Well, I do. Amen. Why don't you ask her? Do you feel loved? You might get a whole different story if you do that. Love her. And then number three, notice uh, we can't spend a ton of time. Children. Children, verse 20. Again, if you're a young person and you're mooching off your I mean, if you're allowing your parents to put a house over your head and, and house you and you live there, whatever age you are, this is you. Children, you are to say it. Obey. That was pretty poor. I know most of them are downstairs. Ready? Children. Obey. You're a child? Child of God, right? Amen. Amen. 
Notice uh, verse uh, 20. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing to the Lord. In Exodus 20, 12, there it is, uh, uh, critical to the home. Honor thy father and thy mother, that thy days may be long upon the land which the Lord thy God giveth thee. Uh, Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 1. Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. Honor thy father and mother, which is the first commandment with promise, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest live long on the earth. Imagine your lifespan depends on, in part, upon your obedience to your parents. You see, disobedience to parents, rebellion against parents, is one of the vices of paganism. It's a mark of the unregenerate world. It's a mark of our ever-increasing wickedness in the last days. And so, again, you're obeying them in the Lord. Not if they tell you to do something, go kill somebody or something that's unbiblical. But you are to listen to them, obey them, follow their instruction. Do what they tell you to do. Because they're your parents. Well, I know much more than they do. You do not. Well, they can't even operate an iPad. (laughs) Who cares? Right. It's really, really important to, to operate an iPad more so than knowing about life. Right. Amen. You have no clue, young person. Right. Listen to your parents. They've been down the road. And if they're Christians and they know the Lord, you should be thankful that you have Christian parents that are trying to bring you up in the nurture and admonition Amen. of the Lord. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Children, say it. One more time. Children. Amen. All right, next one. Verse 21, fathers, provoke not your children to anger, lest they be discouraged. All right, all fathers, real quick. Fathers, two words. All right, one more time. Fathers, provoke not. What exactly does that mean, provoke not? Well, fathers should create an atmosphere in the home which will make obedience an easy and natural thing, an atmosphere of love, an atmosphere of confidence. And he says, notice, don't provoke your children to anger. Right. Amen. How do you do that? Well, there's several ways. You could provoke them to wrath or anger when you belittle them. Right. Right. Amen. You stupid kid. Don't ever say that to a child. Right. Don't belittle them. Amen. When you use anger to motivate them, to get them to do what you want when you're yelling and screaming in their face. Understand what that does. It provokes them to anger. Because here you are over them and they can't do a thing and you're in your, their face angry at them, screaming and yelling, and they're just churning inside and they got to eat it. And you know what they're going to think if that continues on? They're going to think this. I-, I can't wait till I'm 18 I can get out of this place. I don't have to be under this abuse. Don't use anger. Don't belittle them. Uh, don't be unjust. Be fair. Don't treat one favorite over another. Don't be overly severe in punishment. Don't spank them for every little thing. A, punish, uh, a spanking's not always the, the way to handle something. Have, have realistic expectations about them. Don't expect a four-year-old to have the knowledge of a 12-year-old. Or be able to do things that an older child can do. Don't put that pressure on them. Understand where they are. When you do that, Dad, you provoke them to anger. Don't live a life of hypocrisy before them either. Because that will provoke them to anger as well. They see what you are at church and what you are at home. 
And you may be able to put a lid on that for some time, but the day's coming where they're going to say the same thing. I'm out of here. And they're going to think everybody's a bunch of hypocrites because all they see is you as a hypocrite. So they have the idea everybody in the church is that way when that's not true. You've just taught them that. Fathers, provoke not your children to wrath. When Christ is in the house, fathers, provoke not. And then the last one, notice, is the the servants. Now, this is primarily has to do with household servants, but it really can be applied to your workplace as you leave the church and you go home, how you live. Notice, obey in all things your masters. Be a good employee, uh, not with eye service uh, as men pleasers, but in singleness of heart, fearing God. Be the very best employee you can be at work. The other day I was sitting near somebody who was, uh, who was uh, he had a, sh- a shirt on of a company, I just couldn't say it, Royal Farms, he had a shirt on there, and I got into a conversation with him, and he said, yeah, yeah, that's, that's, he said, that's, not, that's not a good place to work, they just, they don't treat their employees, I mean, he just, he just I just opened up the gate, they, they don't treat their employees right, they don't care about us, they don't give us enough, they don't, they don't pay us enough, they, there's no benefit, all the, I said, well, how long have you been working there? He goes, a month. <laughs> I wondered if he sounded like that in his interview. I don't think so. You see, when Christ is in the house dwelling in you richly, Amen. it's going to affect how you are as a wife, Amen. as a husband, as a child, right. as a father, Amen. and as an employee. Right. See, this is what it looks like. Don't say, preacher, we're not that bad. You probably aren't. You're probably good compared to the world. But the question is, are we godly? Are are you as a wife submitting? Are you as a husband lovingly leading? Are you as a child, are you obeying? Are you as a father not provoking your children to anger? And are you at work? Are you are you obeying what your boss tells you to do with a good spirit about it? Amen. You see, Paul brings this thing right to where we live. Praise the Lord. And he's saying, "Listen, you want the victorious Christian life? You want God's blessings upon your life? Amen. Then be real. Right. Be saved and be submitted not to what they think, but to what God says." And when our homes are biblical, godly, man, can you imagine what we'd see happen in our nation and in our church when Christ is in the house? I asked you this morning, how's your home? Be honest about it. You don't have to tell me. Do you know? What's the condition of it? What's your marriage like? What's it like? What's your family the interpersonal relationships, what are they like? Good? Is it good? Is your goal good? Or is your goal godly? Amen. Christ can be seen in the home if you play your role. Whatever person you are on this list, don't look at the other person's job Amen. and say, well, well, yeah, husbands are love, but, but she's not submitting. Stop. Amen. Your responsibility is to do right. your part. Amen. Play your role, 
Be biblical Amen. and let God deal with the rest. And you'll be surprised Praise that your, how your testimony can change your home Praise if it Lord. is real Amen. and consistent. Amen. Amen. Let's pray together.